0: All right, do me a favor, track down a Bible if you can, and get with me to Psalm chapter 16. One of the things that we do, you you might not have a Bible, I understand that. This is something we say every single week. Here's the deal. I really do believe that God's word is powerful and effective. And uh, you didn't show up to church this morning because you wanted to hear my opinions. You probably happened to this online church service because you're wondering, does God have anything to say? And so we believe that the Word of God can actually accomplish the purposes of God. And every week, I encourage people to open up the Bible, and I will actually read from it. Um, in just a few minutes, I'll read directly from the Scriptures, and I believe that God can use that very mightily, very powerfully, and that people's lives can be changed just by hearing the Word of God read. Um, so we'll put, the, we'll put the, the passages up on the screen so you can follow along. But we're in Psalm chapter 16, verses 1 to 11. Now here's the question that I've been wrestling with this week. And I'm imagining that this is where you're at this morning. You're online watching an Easter service, not simply because you want a sentimental experience or you want to hear the opinion of some dude. The reason why you're probably online watching an Easter service is because you're asking the question, does Christianity have anything helpful to say right now? Does Christianity have a word of hope for me? In the midst of this uncertainty and this weird season, this um, historic moment in our lives, does Christianity have anything to offer me now? And I would suggest to you, it does. But in the midst of this reality of COVID-19 and all that we're experiencing, one of the things that's happening is we have this cultural narrative that's being shattered. This cultural narrative that suggests that the greatest purpose in your life is for you to be comfortable and happy. And those things right now are not holding up. Those things are in jeopardy. And what I want to show you today as we go into the Word together is that there is something much better and much greater for you that there is something that God has in store for you. And and it has a lot to do, everything to do with what Christ did when he came back from the grave, from the dead. So we're in Psalm 16. Let me read it along with you. Please follow along on the screen. Psalm 16, a miktam of David. That's probably a lyrical term. These were songs that the people of God would sing together. Psalm 16, starting in verse 1. Nor will you let your faithful, faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Let's pray. Lord, would you speak to us by your spirit through your word? We need to hear your voice right now. And so we're asking God that you would use this time to help each and every one of us consider our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us see him for who he really is, and let us, each of us, commit our lives to him entirely. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, you might be wondering right now, hey dude, do you know what day it is? Um, It's Easter. And uh, ordinarily at Easter time, you go to a church service and you hear a message about Christ exiting the tomb. And you might be thinking to yourself, why on earth are we in Psalm 16? It doesn't really say anything about Jesus. This isn't the story. I think you got the address wrong in your Bible. But the truth is, this is a text that points us to Easter morning. This is a text that actually points us to the resurrection. In fact, later on in the Bible, at one of the very first Christian sermons, St. Peter had a crowd of people in front of him He opened the Bible, so to speak, and he went to Psalm 16, and he read verse 10, and then he said, guys, this is about Jesus Christ. This is about the fact that he came back from the dead. And so we will get to this Easter concept, but what I want to show you here is that in Psalm 16, we find out that if you have a committed faith in God, if you have a committed faith in Jesus Christ our Lord you become an unshakable individual. If you have a committed faith in God himself and what he has done, you become a resilient kind of person. And my prayer has been that every person who's listening, every person who's watching online, every person who will watch later comes to find out that Jesus Christ is for them and has done something at the cross and through his resurrection that can change their lives entirely. Not only today, but for all of eternity. So, two things here in our text. What committed faith looks like in verses 1 to 5. And then secondly, we get to look at the benefits of what it looks like to have that sort of committed faith. So let's get to work. What is a committed faith? What does it look like? In verses 1 to 5, we get a list of different aspects of what it would mean to have a faith that is entirely committed To the things of God. Here's the first thing a person who has a committed faith in God sees God as their refuge. They see God as their place of safety. Look at verse one Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. Now, right now, with the executive orders to shelter in place or in Wisconsin to be safer at home, we're all kind of wrestling with this idea that we should stay at home, in our houses, with our immediate families, for the sake of other people. That we would be safer at home. That we want to protect ourselves, and out of love for neighbor, we want to protect other people, and we want to mitigate the spread of COVID-19. And that is an analogy for what Christians all along ought to be feeling. Not that we stay safe in our home, but we have a place of refuge, and it is God. We have a place of Safety And it is God himself. Now, Christians don't have to hide or post up in, uh, you know, bunkers. They don't have to hunker down. They can, trusting God, go wherever it is that they need to, knowing that their refuge is with them. The author of this psalm, he lived a very challenging life. He had people who saw him as a threat. Uh, King Saul and his army wanted to track him down to capture him and kill him. And he actually did have to live in caves and he had to run for his life. But he's the one who's saying, God, because I am yours and because I am committed to you, you, God, are my refuge. A committed faith is a faith that says, God, you are my safe space. And I want that for you. I want you to be able to say, God is my refuge. Now, a committed faith also claims God as the greatest good. Committed faith says there are all kinds of different benefits and advantages in this world, but at the end of the day, the greatest good is God himself. Look with me at the text here. In verse two, it says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Look down at verse five as well. It says, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. Here's what David is saying. Here's what we ought to be able to say. We are so committed to God. We are so in love with him that we recognize him to be the greatest good in our lives. That he is our portion and our cup. He is the thing that we are going after. Uh, What I'm trying to say is a committed faith is a faith that says, I treasure God above all else. And, And it's actually then a litmus test for how committed we really are to God. A lot of people say Christianity is important to me. Being spiritual is important to me, but it's only marginally important. I'm okay with visiting church on an Easter Sunday or Christmas or whenever. I'm okay with it playing a small role in my life. But committed faith says this is not a small role. This is the entire thing. I am so in love with God that he is my greatest treasure in life. People who are committed to God in that way, people who are committed say, you are my treasure, you are my portion, my cup, the greatest good. And again, this is a test to see how committed you really are. It shows up in the way that we spend our time and our energy and our money. And what I'm trying to show you is that God is inviting you not to a marginal association with him saying, yes, spirituality has a small role to play. He's saying, why not allow it to be the entire thing about you? Why not allow your relationship with him to be the defining marker in your life of who you are and what you are about? That's what a committed faith really is. All right, a committed faith also enjoys fellowship with other believers. Look at verse three. He says, I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Somebody who's, who has a committed faith looks at the people of God longingly. I love these people. I cherish these people. I delight in them. I love the holy people of God. They are noble and I delight in them. Here's what it's saying. Somebody who has a committed faith actually loves the church. Now, that's not to say that the church is perfect and easily lovable. But people who are committed to God look at other believers and they say, I love these people. I delight being together with them. Um, The truth is a, a lot of times Christianity is very far from this. We don't enjoy being together with God's people because they're grumpy and they're mean and they're critical. But people who are committed begin to view the entire experience of other believers in this new light. We begin to look at other people and see them as those who are being redeemed by God, and we begin to fall in love with them and long for good things for them. The church needs to be the thing that we actually adore. The people of God need to be the people that we invest ourselves in. Here we're seeing that those who are committed in their faith to God, fall in love with the fellowship of other believers. Is that true of you? It ought to be. It ought to be. And I'm passionate about this. I'm having conversations with as many people as possible trying to say, falling in love with the church is a big deal. Falling in love with real flesh and blood people, flawed as they are, is a part of what it means to be committed in our faith to God. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's probably uh, the most helpful person on this subject, he wrote a little book called Life Together and the entire thing is suggesting Christians need to love the fellowship that God has placed them in. After all this is said and done and we're able to gather together again, I hope that we look at each other in a new way and we are able to say, I so love you. I know that we are imperfect and we'll bump up against each other along the way, but I love you because I'm committed to God and he's committed to you And we're committed to this thing together. A committed faith also rejects other worldviews and other gods. Now, this one will step on some toes, but it needs to be said. A committed faith is the faith that says, it is in God alone that I am finding my purpose and meaning and my salvation. It is in God alone, and there are other options out there, but those are insufficient for me. I only cling to God and Christ alone. Look at verse four. He says, those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. He's saying there are other gods out there and other people are worshiping them, but that's not for me. I'm not going to offer up my worship, pouring out libations of these blood offerings or even putting their names on my lips. I am committed to God alone. Now we live in a pluralistic culture where The tone is everybody has their little claim to truth. Cor, you're a pastor, so you talk about Christianity. That's great. But other people have different versions of spirituality. And all of those versions have a place to play in this grand scheme. Well, Christianity is actually saying something different from that. It's not saying that there's all kinds of different options, so just pick the one that suits you best. It's saying that there is a God, and he is real, and he has made himself known To humanity through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And you really can't say that all of these different religions are leading you to the same place. That's illogical because they're each making exclusive truth claims. They're each saying that they have certain things that you have to adhere to in order to rightly understand their religion, and they're incompatible. Um, My kids right now, uh, they're six and four, they're very competitive everything is a competition. So a popular phrase in my household right now is, it is not a contest. And I have to remind them of that over and over again. But lately, uh, within this last week, Harrison, my boy, he's been asking me, he'll get up in the morning and and my daughter's still sleeping and he'll say, did I sleep longer than Reese? And he'll ask that question because he wants to beat her. He wants to be the one who slept the longest. Uh, and he's not, he always, you know, he's the, the last one, he's partying at night, going to bed last, and then he's getting up first. Um, but he's always asking, did I beat her? And, you know, the, the temptation then is to, to dismiss it. But I was, I was actually writing this down on a piece of paper with him, and I was showing him, you went to bed after, and you woke up before her. And then I drew the line, I drew a line for him, and I drew a line for my daughter, and I had to show him. You can't both. See, the temptation would be, it doesn't matter. You want to be, you want to sleep the longest, she, she wants to sleep the longest, yeah, that doesn't really matter. But if you're really looking at it, they are different. And that's what needs to be said about these different religions as well. They're each making different claims and they can't all be true. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. He's making a very exclusive claim that the way to be restored to the maker is through him. And either he is right and loving and gracious by revealing that truth, or he's a liar. The truth is he is loving and gracious and kind, and he is the way. And so we need to be people who recognize our committed faith says, I am clinging to God alone in his revealed way of salvation, which is through faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, there are other things out there, but this is the way that God has made for us to be saved. Now, that's what a committed faith is. A committed faith is all those different things that we've just went through. So here's what a committed faith does then. There are some benefits to having a resilient faith like this. The first is it grants a delightful inheritance. It gives you something that you can look forward to. Having a committed faith in God and in his son, Jesus Christ, gives you a delightful inheritance. Look at verse 6. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. He's saying that when I am trusting in God, I have this incredible hope in front of me. God is going to give me these blessings and these good things. Now, even David himself, I don't think would suggest that it's all going to come immediately and materially. I think there are many false teachers out there who are promoting this idea that if you have enough faith that you will get all kinds of blessings. But in many cases, even in David's cases, there are hardships. But we're able to look beyond that to what God is ultimately going to do. And we're able to say, we have this incredible, delightful inheritance. We will receive from God something that is so extravagant that the present suffering that we go through right now will be eclipsed by that glory and that reward. Now, uh, the Apostle Paul, let me show it to you there. I'll illustrate it from a New Testament letter. The Apostle Paul understood this inheritance. He talked about how he was, he was in a prison cell, writing a letter to a church in Philippi, and he's reminding them, this isn't my geography. I am a citizen of heaven. We have a heavenly citizenship. And he's writing this letter, and he says to them, hey, friends, I have learned a secret to contentment. What what is that secret? He's telling them, I have this secret to be able to go through all kinds of different challenges, including the one that he's presently in as he's locked up in a prison cell, writing to a church. And he's saying, I've learned this secret. And I think the secret is he he understands his inheritance in Christ Jesus. He says, whether I'm well-fed or hungry, I'm okay. Whether I'm naked or clothed, I'm okay. Whether I have a lot or nothing, I'm okay because I have found this secret to contentment. He understands his inheritance. And then he's able to say, this is all on account of Christ who gives me that strength. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So when we recognize, when we have that faith in God, one of the benefits is we have a delightful inheritance and we look forward to it. We look forward to that incredible day when God rewards us for our faithfulness. Another thing about having a committed faith is that it gives us instructions for life. It, it, it helps us to know how we ought to live. It's interesting right now to look at how many how how many voices we um, interact with on a regular basis. I mean, podcasts right now they're they're a big thing because we want gurus and experts to tell us things about you know how to be more productive or how to be more effective in our work environment or how to be, or or we just want to listen to them tell us about something that is a hobby. But we we listen to all these different voices and we're clamoring for someone to tell us how we could be better or how we could experience more. But here's what's incredible about having a committed faith. One of the benefits is that God speaks over us. That the most important voice in the universe actually comes to our aid to counsel us. Look with me at verse 7. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. He's saying that God is speaking over me and he's giving me directives for how to live. He's my counselor. He's showing me the decisions that, that I should make. He, when I reflect on that, even in, at nighttime, God, through my heart and the meditations of it, he's telling me things about the world that I live in and it is beautiful. God is speaking over me, giving me instructions For my life. God can speak over you. You don't have to navigate life in the dark. You don't have to try to feel your way through this thing. God has given us a firm word. And ever since the beginning of COVID-19 and the shelter in place, we've been saying we are going to continue to open this book and allow God to steady our hearts by his voice. We're going to allow his voice to navigate these uncertain times. And I want that for you as well. That is a benefit of having a committed faith in God. Now, a person who has a committed faith also has the benefit of being unshakable. Look at verse eight. I keep my eyes always on the Lord with him at my right hand. I will not be shaken. It's saying that there are all kinds of things that are falling down around me They're, The world feels like it's, you know, the sky is falling, but I have God and therefore I will not be shaken. He's at my right hand. So I am okay. So when we're going through COVID-19 and everything's kind of falling apart and the economy's falling apart and people's health is falling apart and, 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 you know, all these things are just crumbling around us, we're able to say, if you have that faith in God and in Christ, we're able to say, I will not be shaken. What an awesome truth and an awesome promise for us. Now, committed faith also affects us at that emotional level, at the level of our affections, a committed faith allows us to have the fruit of the spirit that results in peace and joy and gladness. Look at verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices my body also will rest secure. When you have a committed faith in God, it changes you from the inside out. So you can be going through hardships but you could do it with this incredible joy about you. This gladness in your heart. Don't you want that? I mean right now it's so easy. To go in an opposite direction and to be irritable and to be frustrated and, and to be unkind or, la, or, or abrasive. But here's what a committed faith can do. It can change you at that heart level so you become a tender and gentle person who's full of joy, full of gladness, full of the love of God spilling out in all these different ways. All right, a committed faith also gives you a promised life beyond the grave that even if we were to die a committed faith suggests to us there is hope beyond the grave this is where the easter message comes in clearly verse 10 it says because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead nor will you let your faithful one see decay david here is speaking about his relationship with god and he's saying i understand that even if i were to be struck down i will live on he's he's pointing to this resurrection. You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. Yes, I will die and my body will be laid in a a grave somewhere. But you are pointing to this reality, God, that I will see life again. You will bring me back from the grave. Now, this resurrection is explained very clearly, as I mentioned, by Peter in his sermon. 50 days after the, the very first Easter morning, Jesus came back from the grave and um, interacted with his disciples over the course of 40 days and then ascended back to the right hand of the Father. And he told his disciples that they were now going to be witnesses. And the major message, if you've ever read the New Testament, the major message is we are following a resurrected Christ. He died. We saw that. we We saw him in the tomb. His body laid there covered by that stone, we went to visit him. He was not there, he is alive. And they said, we saw him, we talked to him, we, we ate with him, we looked at the nail-pierced hands and the side where the spear pierced him, we saw him. And so now Peter preaching to a giant crowd because there were um, some crazy things that happened that day and the crowds gathered and they're saying, what on earth is going on? And Peter picks up a Bible, so to speak, and he says, okay guys, remember Psalm 16, verse 10? You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. And what does Peter say? This is about Jesus. This is not just about David, but this is about our King, Jesus. I'm going to read it to you. It's in Acts 2, verses 29 and following. He puts it like this in his sermon. He says, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. So he, his body is somewhere in the earth, and you could track it down. Verse 30, but he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that God would place one of David's descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. He says, Psalm 16 points to Easter morning. It was David saying hundreds of years previous, I know what is going to happen. It was David saying even better than he knew maybe as God by his spirit spoke through him, but that resurrection was something that Jesus was ultimately going to accomplish. And that is the experience that we look at on Easter morning, we look at this resurrected Christ and we look at the story of him exiting the tomb and what that means for us. He came back from the dead and that changes everything. And it's not just for him, but it's for all who would have a committed faith in him. It's not just about him, it's also about us. The Christian, the committed believer is somebody who has that promised experience of resurrection as well. He rose on that day, but he did not do that all by himself. He is also bringing along with him all who, are, who will place their faith in him for eternal life. So we too will rise. Over the uh, shelter in place order, we started watching all of the Star Wars movies. And whether you're you know, a fan or not is probably how you think of my parenting right now. If I'm a good dad or, or not so much. But we've been watching all the movies. And there was a scene that stood out to me recently. And it was the scene where Obi Wan Kenobi is fighting with Darth Vader, and they've got their lightsaber battle going on, and um, and then it kind of comes to a stall. That fight comes to a stall, and Obi Wan looks at Darth, and he says, "Strike me down, and I will become more po- more powerful than you could ever possibly imagine." And he puts his lightsaber away, and he gets struck down. And I was thinking. That is what every Christian can say. Not because we're like Jedi Knights or something weird like that, or we become a part of the force, but we're able to say, we are going to rise. We are going to rise just like Jesus rose. We too will come back from the grave. Death doesn't get the final word for any of us who have that committed faith in the resurrected Lord. Christians during the third and fourth centuries, they were known for their care of the sick and dying. In the third and fourth century, um, there, were, there were plagues. And at the height of it, 5,000 people a day were dying. And Christians were the ones who were, were uh, healthcare workers in those situations, caring for the sick, doing what they could to try to alleviate pain. And when people would pass away, Christians were the ones who would, who would offer the proper burial of the, de- the deceased. Why? Why were they able to do that? Well, part of the reason why they were able to do that is because they're following a resurrected Lord. They're able to say, our king died, they put him in a tomb, but he's alive right now. And when I die, I too will rise. Strike me down, I'll become more powerful than you could ever possibly imagine. That's what Christians can claim, this resurrection power that is at work in us presently and will bring us back eternally. And so, man, what can death do to us? We should be an unshakable people who can look at the hardships dead in the face and say, you've got nothing on me. I'm invincible because of Christ. Here's the final thing, and it's very significant. Having a committed faith in God gives you God. It gives you God himself. Look with me at verse 11. It says, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Here's what having a committed faith is able to do. It's able to bring you to God. It's able to bring you to the maker of your soul. And in his presence, you will have eternal pleasures forevermore. It's God giving you this path of life to himself. He is, he is offering himself to each and every one of us. We can have him and that would be the greatest thing. That would be the most significant thing for any of us. I mean, all of us are, every person I've ever met is chasing gifts. They're chasing things that God has invented and made. They're trying to gain more resources, more money, more trips, more pleasures, more different, all these different things. Everybody I've ever met is chasing a gift, something that God has invented for our joy and for our pleasure. But listen, what if you could have the gift giver himself? What if you could have the inventor of joy? What if you could be in his presence forevermore, at his right hand, enjoying all of the benefits that he has in store for you? You can, you can, as we've looked today at what committed faith looks like and what it means for us. I want you to be very aware that God is making that offer right now, that he is offering himself to you through his son, Jesus. You could have a committed faith today. Here's what it looks like. It looks like surrendering to Jesus. It looks like placing your faith in him for what he accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection. It's, it's trusting in him, believing in him, calling on his name for salvation. Peter, in his sermon in Acts chapter two, after explaining that Psalm 16 was really about Christ and his resurrection, he says to the crowd, here's what you need to do entrust yourself to him. He says, repent and believe. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the salvation of your souls, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God himself will come and take residence within you. But that's what God is saying again today. You can be saved by placing your faith in Christ, receiving him as Lord and Savior and King, receiving all that he has done for us on the cross and through that resurrection and that hope of glory that we have of being with him forever. So I'm going to pray right now. And I'm going to ask that if you want to make that decision, that you would actually do something about it. Take a next step. We've got members of our team online right now. If you even comment in the comment section that you want to surrender your life to Christ, that you want to trust in him for salvation, people will come alongside you digitally and help you through that. If you want to reach out to me personally, I'd love to have that conversation with you. But God has come to make himself known so that we could have a committed faith and we could receive God himself forever. Let's pray. Lord, right now, I ask that you, by your spirit, would be moving in the hearts of people all over, not just at our church, God. This is a a historic moment that I've been anticipating now for a while. Churches meeting online, people all over the place hearing the good news of the gospel people who maybe would never wander into a church service, but at their home, they're tuned in. And I'm asking for revival, God, that right now in this moment, by your spirit, you are sweeping through homes, that you are making yourself known to people in a real and tangible way, that you are revealing that you are alive and that you are offering yourself to people, that they need to receive you by faith, that they need to entrust themselves to you to receive salvation that they need to repent and be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I'm praying, God, that people would have the courage to do that right now. If we've got the courage to post things online that we wouldn't normally post or say face-to-face, give us the courage in this moment to post, I want Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. And then, Lord, help us to gladly receive them as family, to welcome them home to a right relationship with their Maker into a restored relationship with their brothers and sisters in Christ. What a wonderful Savior. What a risen and reigning King. We love you. We pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen and amen.